Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. Dr. Santosh Schrau, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, hosts this podcast with support from Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. In this episode of Integrative Oncology Talk, I'll be speaking with Dr. Donald Abrams, who is the Chief of the Hematology Oncology Division at San Francisco General Hospital and a Professor of Clinical Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He has an integrative oncology consultation practice at the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. Dr. Abrams is a former past president of the Society of Integrative Oncology and a leader in the field of integrative oncology. Dr. Abrams is an expert on cannabis and cancer, a researcher, and a frequent lecturer on this topic. Hi, Donald. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us. I know that this is a hot-button topic for those of us who are in the field and also for those diagnosed with cancer is medical marijuana or cannabis. Let me first ask you, what is the right term to use? Is it medical marijuana or cannabinoids or cannabis? Yeah, well, it depends on who you're talking to. Uh, The plant is cannabis, cannabis sativa. That is sort of the scientific uh, Latin name. It's been a medicine for thousands of years, but in 1937, uh, a prohibitionist named Harry Anslinger uh, tried to get it off of the U.S. formulary by introducing what he called the Marijuana Tax Act, spelling it with an H as it's spelled in Mexico. And basically doing that, using the Mexican word for the plant was to do an end run around physicians who knew the medicine as cannabis and also to associate cannabis with more nefarious south of the border goings on. So a lot of people nowadays are rebellious against calling it marijuana because they think it gives credit to Harry Anslinger. On the other hand, some people sort of posit reverse racism and saying by not using the Mexican name and and calling it cannabis, you're, it would be like calling the, you know, broccoli, brassica, whatever, using the Latin binomial. So, so I prefer to call it cannabis. Cannabinoids are the chemicals in the plant uh, that have been studied the most for their uh, biologic and medical applications. Cannabinoids are 21 carbon terpenophenolic compounds, and the plant has about 140 different cannabinoids. The most famous one, the most psychoactive one, is delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC. But lately, that's been overtaken in popularity by cannabidiol, or CBD, uh, which has really sort of jumped to the top of the most favored cannabinoid chart, in my opinion, without much evidence to support that. So you've talked about this a lot in terms of how cannabis got classified as a Schedule One drug. 
But before that, it had been used historically as medicine by many cultures. So take us through the history of cannabis for medicinal purposes. The earliest evidence in archaeologic findings is about 2,700 years ago. And I think it's probably best assumed that cannabis arose in China. Uh, One tomb that was exhumed just south of Mongolia uh, had the remains of what appears to be a Caucasian shaman. And on either side of his head was a clay pot or a basket in which were the flowers of the female plant of cannabis sativa, suggesting that 2,700 years ago, he knew that that's where the action was. Recently, uh, these two new articles are finding cannabis in funeral pyres, uh, again, in that same neck of the woods in China and uh, east of China, uh, suggesting, one article suggested that they burnt the cannabis in the funeral pyres so that the people could get into a trance But another explanation that I just read was to overcome the smell of putrefying corpse, which is interesting. So it's it's felt that cannabis moved from China along the Silk Road into the Indian subcontinent and then further uh, west into the Arab world, where it was used as medicine for thousands of years. Cannabis reportedly was first brought to the West by W.B. O'Shaughnessy who was a surgeon working in the British East Indies Company in India, who saw all the benefits of cannabis and brought it to the United Kingdom in 1842, where reportedly it later became Queen Victoria's favorite treatment for her menstrual cramps. Uh, It made its way across the ocean then to the US, and at the beginning of the 20th century, most of the precursors of what we now recognize as big pharma had cannabis medicines available for physicians to prescribe to their patients. So how popular was it at that time? You know, even though I'm aging, I wasn't around back then, so (laughs) I can't tell you. But its popularity began to decline in the mid part of the early mid part of the uh, 20th century with the availability of, if you will, targeted therapies that were useful now for seizures, uh, analgesia, uh, spasms. You know, this is when uh, aspirin became available, syringes, etc. So cannabis then became sort of looked upon as, well, how can one thing have so many potential benefits, a little bit like snake oil? So uh, physicians became a little less enthusiastic about it. And then in 1937 came the introduction of the Marijuana Tax Act, which imposed a levy of a dollar an ounce for medical use and a hundred dollars an ounce for recreational use, which in 1937 dollars was quite a significant penalty. And then, as you mentioned, in 1970, the control <clears throat> the Controlled Substances Act placed cannabis in Schedule One, meaning high potential for abuse and no accepted medical use, and the rest after that had been history until currently when we've sort of started turning around some of the prohibition that's been shrouding cannabis and making it unavailable for patients as a medicine. I mean, I definitely feel like all the momentum has been pushing for medicinal uses for cannabis, if not outright making it legal in many parts of the U.S. 
What I found interesting is this is not only a controversy in the United States. I recently went to Europe, and in France, the use of cannabis is illegal as well. The story makes sense when you study what happened in the U.S., but how did our prohibition affect the use of cannabis in other countries? Yeah, well, in 1961, there was what's called, I believe it's a United Nations Single Convention Treaty, and 150 nations signed on to the fact that cannabis was a prohibited narcotic, which I don't even think it's a narcotic, but all the, you know, this is the problem when you have politics involved in medicine. Uh, you know, there's misinformation and and people get, you know, carried on by the zeal of the political will. So all of these nations signed on to this treaty uh, saying that everybody was going to treat cannabis the same way uh, as a prohibited narcotic. So yeah, it's around the world. That's fascinating. I mean, one of the things that people have started to talk about in places where recreational marijuana is legal is the pros and cons from a medical standpoint. Do you see any downside for people with cancer in terms of whether there's any concern for whether people may take the wrong things or not be directed by their doctor? Yeah, you know, I believe that incarceration is much more detrimental to health than inhalation of cannabis. And the number of people that are incarcerated in this country, particularly people of color, uh, on the basis of cannabis possession crimes, if you will, is, is quite significant. And I do think that being jailed is much more detrimental to health than inhaling cannabis. I just came back from a 16-day cruise to a total solar eclipse. And I reached an age a few years ago where alcohol doesn't agree with me at all. The number of patients I've admitted to the hospital over my 40 years of being a physician due to the complications of alcohol is quite significant. The number of patients I've admitted to a hospital due to complications of cannabis use is zero. Alcohol, in my opinion, is quite toxic, and it is associated, I'm an oncologist, with about 6% of all cancers. Uh, the Gates Foundation did a burden of disease uh, survey of 195 countries and concluded that the best amount of alcohol consumption for health is zero. And sitting on this cruise ship for 16 days and watching the glasses of wine be filled and filled and refilled and filled, such a toxic substance, you know, it's amazing how, you know, if they had made that illegal by a United Nations single convention treaty, I wonder what the world would be like today. Duly noted. <laughs> so how did you get started doing research in cannabis? So I went to college in the 60s, I always say. So I was not, uh, you know, totally uh, unfamiliar with cannabis and what it does and what it doesn't do. Uh, I also had a partner who died of AIDS in 1989. And he outlived uh, three of his support groups because at my uh, behest, he never took AZT, which was the only available antiretroviral from 1986 to 1989. And he did use cannabis on a daily basis. And so in 1992, uh, I received a letter from Rick Doblin, who's the president of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, suggesting that a clinical trial looking at the 
potential benefit of cannabis should come from Mary Rathbun's institution. So Mary Rathbun was a woman who was in her 60s who was a volunteer in our AIDS clinic here at San Francisco General. And she used to wheel our patients to x-ray and drop off their prescriptions uh, in the pharmacy. And she also used to bake them brownies. And they were those special kind of brownies. And she would bring them to our patients. She called them her kids. Her only daughter had been killed by a drunk driver. So she was very anti-alcohol, but very pro-cannabis. And in 1992, the AIDS conference of all places was in Amsterdam. And I was in Amsterdam in my hotel room glancing at CNN headline news. And I saw my friend Mary Rathman being arrested for baking brownies in Sonoma County to bring to our AIDS patients. So when I got home, that's when this letter was addressed to the director of research in the AIDS program at San Francisco General, which I was not. But the letter found its way to my desk and I said, okay, you know, I went to college in the 60s and at that time we only had three antiretroviral drugs and I had just published in the New England Journal a comparison of drug two to drug three in patients who had failed AZT. So I told Rick Doblin, okay, send me your idea for a study that we should do. And thinking it would take him a while because he wasn't a physician, in a week, he sent me back a protocol to study uh, marijuana brownies in patients with AIDS wasting syndrome. And I said, no, no, we can't study brownies. You gotta, you know, they're not gonna last for the 12 weeks of the trial without getting stale. So let's try again. So that 1992 was the beginning of my efforts to try to get cannabis from the government to study uh, in patients with AIDS wasting. What I learned very, rapidly or not so rapidly was that the only legal source of cannabis to study in this country because it's a schedule one substance is from the national institute on drug abuse or nida and nida actually has a congressional mandate that they can only study substances of abuse as substances of abuse so my request to study cannabis as a potential therapy for patients with aids wasting syndrome could never be granted so in 1996, that was when actually California voted to allow medical cannabis. And 1996 is also when we got our first highly active antiretroviral drugs for AIDS patients, the so-called protease inhibitors. So the wasting syndrome disappeared, but there was a new sort of opportunity here because these protease inhibitors were very uh, much involved with the system in the liver that metabolizes other pharmaceuticals as well as illicit substances, if you will. So I said to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, I wanted to do a study to see if it was safe for patients on protease inhibitors to inhale cannabis. I wanted to make sure it didn't change the level of the protease inhibitor in their bloodstream and hence change the level of the virus or change their immune system. So since I was looking to see if there was a potential detriment to the use of cannabis, I was finally awarded $1 million and 1,400 of the government's finest cigarettes to do research uh, in 1996. Is it still the case now that you have to go through the same mechanism to study cannabis? Yes, even though there are, you know, it's now available for medicine in what, 31 or 32 states, it's still federally illegal. 
And so if you have a license uh, to prescribe Schedule 2 through 5, if you want to be able to retain your DEA registration, uh, the only legal source of cannabis, I believe, uh, unless you get some sort of dispensation from uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration, is to use cannabis from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. But how restrictive are they in terms of studying the medicinal uses? Again, my understanding is that they have a mandate from Congress that they can only study substances of abuse as substances of abuse. So if you want to study the potential therapeutic benefit of cannabis, you have to use NIDA cannabis, but they really can't fund such a study. We were fortunate in California at the end of the last century to have a budget surplus. And one of our state senators appropriated $3 million a year for three years to establish a center for medicinal cannabis research at the University of California, which became housed at the University of California, San Diego. And with those funds, uh, the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research was able to fund clinical trials looking at the potential health benefits of cannabis using NIDA cannabis. NIDA spends about $150 million a year studying the potential negative effects of cannabis, but again, really cannot use their funding to look for the potential benefits. What about now that there's a new approval for CBD in children with seizures? It's an extract of the plant that's uh, enriched for cannabidiol or CBD, which is felt to be not psychoactive, but does have activity in children with seizure disorders. So that is licensed and available. And people say it's the first cannabis-based medicine. But in truth, we have dronabinol, which is Delta 9 THC, which was licensed and approved in 1986 for treatment of chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. And the indication was expanded in 1992 for treatment of loss of appetite in patients with the AIDS wasting syndrome. So I consider THC also to be a cannabis-based or cannabis-derived medicine because that is the main psychoactive component. So I think CBD as epidiolex is getting uh, too much uh, of a boost as being the first cannabis-derived medicine as these have been available for quite a long time now. Well, thanks. I want to shift now to how people are affected and the biological mechanisms for both THC and CBD, if you could take us through that. So uh, we have this system in, in the body that we just don't learn about in medical school, unfortunately, called the endocannabinoid system. And it's a system that at this point in time has two known receptors, the CB1, cannabinoid 1, and CB2. The CB1 receptor is one of the most densely populated seven transmembrane domain G-protein coupled receptors in the human brain, despite the fact that we just don't learn about it in medical school. CB1 receptors are present in virtually all organs and tissues in the body as well. The CB2 receptor was initially identified in cells of the immune system, in the spleen and in the peripheral blood, and the largest concentration is present in B lymphocytes and natural killer cells, suggesting that this receptor may have something to do uh, with Im immunity. 
Now, why do we and all animal species down through sea squirts have these receptors? It's You've never seen a monkey smoking uh, cannabis. So it's because we make our own endogenous cannabinoids. Just as we make our endogenous opiates, the endorphins, we make endogenous cannabinoids, the endocannabinoids. The first was identified by Raphael Machulam at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and he named it anandamide after the Sanskrit word for bliss. The second uh, endocannabinoid that was identified is called 2-arachnidonylglycerol, or 2-AG. And these endocannabinoids complex with our cannabinoid receptors and lead to changes in membrane potentials that lead to changes intracellularly. Uh, interestingly, if you remember how a nerve impulse travels, it goes from the presynaptic neuron across the synapse, which is the space between the pre and postsynaptic neuron. The endocannabinoids are produced on demand from the postsynaptic neuron, and they diffuse retrograde to the presynaptic neuron where the cannabinoid receptor exists. And when they complex with the cannabinoid receptor, it leads to changes in potassium influx and calcium efflux, which actually paralyze the neurotransmitter vesicles so that they don't dump their neurotransmitter contents into the synapse. And basically, that's how cannabinoids work. The endocannabinoids work that way. And THC from the plant also does the same thing because it complexes with the cannabinoid receptor. Interestingly, CBD, cannabidiol, does not actually complex with the receptor. If anything, it's perhaps a little bit of an antagonist to the cannabinoid receptors. So how does CBD work? That's a question that is still unclear. Some people postulate that CBD is present in the plant to really modulate the activity and effects of THC. And it does that by acting on that enzyme system in the liver that I previously mentioned that's involved in degrading other pharmaceutical and chemicals in substances that are used recreationally to get people high. What CBD probably does, it's postulated, when, when THC is taken by mouth, when it goes through the liver, it's metabolized or broken down into an even more psychoactive version. The delta-9 THC becomes an 11-hydroxy-THC. And it's felt that CBD inhibits that breakdown of the delta-9 to the 11-hydroxy so that people don't get as profound a psychoactive effect. So, yeah, so that's what CBD people think is there to modulate the effects of THC, both the good and the bad. So let me try to summarize here. Basically, we make our own cannabinoids in a system called the endocannabinoid system. But obviously, THC, if you take a product with THC, it can activate cannabinoid receptors on neurons. One question I have is whether it is a lack of one's own endocannabinoids that would lead to a requirement to take cannabis and cannabis products, or why is it that you need to take it at all if you can make it on your own? Well, I don't, that's a good question. I mean, Ethan Russo, who's an ethnobotanist as well as a neurologist, has postulated that there are some 
uh, endocannabinoid deficiency syndromes, including migraine headaches and fibromyalgia, two that come to my mind offhand. Uh, he feels that these are syndromes that benefit from uh, uh, plant cannabinoids because the body doesn't have enough of its own endogenous cannabinoids. But otherwise, why do we use cannabinoids? I don't think is to replace the deficiency, but because for some people, it creates a, a sensation of euphoria, uh, which they find pleasant. What we know about cannabinoid receptors, just like everything else in the body, they can be genetically altered that your cannabinoid receptors are maybe different from mine by single nucleoside polymorphism so that some people can inhale cannabis and get euphoric and happy and some people get no effect and some people get a dysphoric reaction often characterized by paranoia. And that could be set and setting. It could be the cannabis strain, or it could be, again, the genetics of the cannabinoid receptor. Okay, thanks. Can you take us through some of the symptoms that people use cannabis for? And I really want to know what research has been done. Yeah, so, so I was one of the 16 members of the committee from the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, uh, which published uh, the health effects of cannabis and cannabinoids the current state of evidence and recommendations for research in January of uh, 2017. And this uh, volume uh, was the product of six months of uh, heavy, heavy work that we did and evaluation of 10,000 abstracts published in the medical literature. Again, there are about 13 chapters in the book on the potential harmful effects of cannabis because due to the funding situation, that's where the bulk of the studies have been. There's one chapter on therapeutics. And in that one chapter on therapeutics, we found the most conclusive or substantial evidence that cannabis or cannabinoids were effective for treatment of pain, for treatment of chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, and for treatment of spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis. There was a slightly lower level of evidence that cannabinoids were effective in treating sleep disorders. But that's pretty much the extent of what we were able to find in the medical literature for things that had been published up until June of 2016. All of the evidence about epilepsy uh, in children was published since that time, uh, 2017 and 18. And previously you had done research showing that smoking marijuana had reduced peripheral neuropathy in HIV patients. Yeah, so that was actually, it was my study that allowed us to say cannabis and cannabinoids are useful in patients with pain because the effect size seen in my study of patients with HIV-related peripheral neuropathy that was funded by uh, the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research at the University of California was the most beneficial analgesic effect seen in the medical literature to date. Uh, since my study, there have been four or five other clinical trials looking at HIV neuropathy and, in fact, other forms of neuropathic pain showing that cannabis is useful. A very small study uh, showed that vaporized cannabis 
was effective in uh, patients with diabetic neuropathy, which of course is a much bigger problem worldwide than HIV-related peripheral neuropathy is currently. So as an oncologist, where is the clinical trial of cannabis in patients with chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, which is a huge problem? There's one study that's done by the makers of uh, Epidiolex. They also made a drug called uh, Nabiximols, uh, sold as Sativex, which is a one-to-one ratio of CBD to THC, uh, which was licensed and approved in Europe and in Canada for treatment of multiple sclerosis, uh, pain, and spasticity, but has not yet been approved in the United States. But in a small 16-person study, in patients with chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, a placebo-controlled crossover study, there was really no difference between this under-the-tongue spray of nabiximols and the placebo in the 16 patients. But they did do a so-called responder analysis. Five of the patients did have a significant decrease in their neuropathic pain so that the number needed to treat for one person to benefit would be five which is suggested it's a worthwhile uh, intervention to pursue in chemotherapy-induced neuropathic pain, cannabis. Is there any evidence that cannabis can be used for prevention of neuropathy? Great question. I was just going to say that in animal models of chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy in rats and mice, the three major classes of chemo drugs that cause neuropathy, the vinca alkaloids, the platinums, and the taxanes, not only can you treat the neuropathy, but you can actually prevent it by pretreatment with cannabis or cannabinoids. So yeah, so that's a great question. And if we can prevent peripheral neuropathy, that would be great. Uh, it's a study that needs to be done, but it would be it would be a large and long study. And so who's going to pay for it? Yeah. Well, especially peripheral neuropathy, because if you develop it, you just kind of hope that it goes away because unfortunately you might otherwise have to live with it for the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, that's what I always say. I've cured many people of cancer who are disabled by their peripheral neuropathy and that's, that's sort of unfortunate. Right. How effective is cannabis for the prevention of nausea? So the clinical trials all were done in the 70s and 80s of Delta 9 THC as preparations known as dronabinol or nabilone, both of which are licensed and approved on the basis of those clinical trials where they were compared to the available antiemetics of those days, which are not as potent or effective as the available antiemetics today. In all of those 30 studies that were done, uh, the Delta 9 THC was better than placebo and equi-efficacious as the available agents at that time. There are only three studies in the medical literature looking at inhaled cannabis for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. In two of them, the cannabis was only made available after Delta-9 THC had failed, so not likely that it would be effective. And the third study was a small crossover study that the results of which are very difficult to interpret. But I've been an oncologist for 37 years in San Francisco, and I always say I need a clinical trial to tell me that cannabis is an effective antiemetic, like I need a clinical trial to tell me that penicillin is an antibiotic. It works. 
I get emails when we had to write letters for patients to access medical cannabis. They used to send me emails requesting a renewal of their letter because it's the only thing that worked for their chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. And the currently available agents that we use as first line uh, constipate the serotonin inhibitors. And patients with cancer who feel that they're dying or part of them has, has died uh, don't really like to be constipated. So many of my patients forego their prescription uh, antiemetics in favor of using cannabis alone. Cannabis, in my opinion, is a very effective anti-nausea agent. So this gets to something that I feel is a constant discussion in our field. You know, you just talked about your own personal experience, that you have multiple decades of patients who've used cannabis and have found relief of symptoms. And I know that there are many people who would still be resistant to whether it's cannabis or acupuncture or a natural product to using anything unless we have that clinical trial, real evidence. What is your take on that? For me, a lot of it is about risk-benefit. And so this gets back to our actual practice of integrative oncology and helping people with whatever we know right now. And my own personal take is that if something is not necessarily harmful and we've shown that it's tolerated and we have anecdotal evidence that it works, then I use that experience and I tell people that it's probably worthwhile. But I know there are other people who feel differently. Yeah, well, I always use the word evidence-informed as opposed to evidence-based when we talk about integrative interventions, because for some of them, it's just difficult to generate the evidence. Uh, right now, I've thrown up my hands in the air trying to figure out how to study cannabis anymore, because if I just use NIDA's preparations, is that the real world? I mean, patients, when they go to a dispensary here in San Francisco, have so many choices of inhaled, smoked, vaped, edibles, tinctures, oils, patches, suppositories, creams, lotions. You know, what are we going to study? And is it going to be THC or CBD or CBN or THCV? Is it going to be one-to-one, two-to-one, one-to-two, seven-to-one? You know, what are we going to study? So I think, you know, the evidence that we're going to have to rely upon is going to have to be observational. I mean, we just did a study in San Francisco, San Diego, and Chicago in our three integrative medicine clinics and three dispensaries in each of those three cities to ask patients using CBD, CBD-dominant products, what they're using, how they're using it, what they're using it for, and whether it worked. Because CBD is just taken off as the most beloved cannabinoid in the absence of any research that it really does anything, except for perhaps helping decrease the number of seizures in children with seizure disorders. But otherwise, there's only five clinical trials in the medical literature on the effects of CBD on anything. Let's get back to some of the symptoms. I mean, I think one of the main uses for cannabis is for pain. Yeah. How does it help and how does it augment opioid use, which is obviously a huge problem? Well, I think Michael Pollan said it best in, in his book, The Botany of Desire. He, he has a good chapter on cannabis, and he says that the reason we and all animal species uh, have cannabis and cannabinoids is to help us to forget so while I'm talking to you now, I'm not trying to remember the last time I gave a lecture on cannabis or where I parked my car so I could sort of be here now. And I 
forget everything that's not relevant. In his next book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, Michael is trying to gather his own food. And in one chapter, he's crouched in the woods, holding still with a rifle on his shoulder, waiting to kill a deer. And he said, this is painful. And he postulates that the reason that we and all animal species down through sea squirts have this system of cannabinoid receptors and endocannabinoids is to help us to forget pain. And, you know, I think that's probably correct. And so, you know, the strongest evidence is that cannabis and cannabinoids are useful in pain. And there is studies in animals that suggest that cannabinoids and opiates are synergistic so that one plus one equals five instead of two with regards to the degree of pain relief. And we did do a small pharmacokinetic interaction study in patients on sustained release morphine or sustained release OxyContin where we subjected them to vaporized cannabis three times a day and measured the curve of 12-hour concentration of their opiate and since they did have pain, we also asked them what happened to their pain. So for the morphine group, we saw, if anything, a slight decrease in the plasma concentration of the morphine after exposure to cannabis three times a day for four days. The oxycodone group, the curves were entwined. So if the level of the opiate decreases or stays the same, you would expect pain to increase or stay the same. And in fact, overall, the patients experienced a 25% reduction in their pain when they added cannabis to the opiate. The morphine group had a 33% reduction and the oxycodone group about a 20%. But this study only had 10 or 11 patients per arm, so it was not powered for pain as an endpoint. It was just a safety and pharmacokinetic interaction study. But we know in states where cannabis has been available, that the number of opiate prescriptions decreases, and in fact, death from opiate overdose also decreases. So I think people, and I, my own anecdotal clinical experience is that many of my patients are able to wean themselves off of their opiates uh, by using uh, cannabis. So I think that there is uh, definitely analgesia uh, and uh, probably synergistic analgesia when cannabinoids and opioids are taken together. What is your experience with CBD when it comes to pain? I know a lot of people that I see use it for joint aches and they swear by it. So I have a friend and colleague, uh, Rachel Pirube, who's uh, she calls herself an endocannabinologist in Uruguay where she practices and treats a lot of patients with cannabis. Uh, cannabis is legal in Uruguay, so she does have a significant experience. And she cautions me that CBD is effective for pain, usually only when it's secondary to inflammation, and that the minimal dose you need is about 100 milligrams. And she believes that CBD is not particularly effective for pain, for example, from neuropathic pain or other nerve-induced pains, but mainly for inflammatory pain. So I agree with you. I see a lot of people who even put topical CBD on joints that are painful and get immediate relief. I mean, I've experienced it myself, putting it on my knee, and even before I finish applying it, it's gone, and I have no idea how that's even possible. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Donald, what do you say to those people who ask if cannabis treats cancer? Oh, Santos, that's my most difficult issue. I mean, there's very good evidence in the test tube, particularly against rat brain tumors. My friend and colleague Manuel Guzman uh, in Madrid at Complutense University has a laboratory that studies the effect of cannabinoids on metabolism. And the most metabolically active cells in the body are the brain. So they grow brain cells and they add cannabinoids. So they said, maybe we could do our work faster if we grow up a brain tumor. So they grew up a rat brain tumor and they added cannabinoids and everything died. So they said, oh, maybe we did something wrong. So they did it again and everything died. So they said, well, maybe this is a bad batch of cannabinoids. So they went back to the normal brain and everything lived. Since that time, they've done very elegant work showing that there is a direct toxic effect of cannabinoids on those brain tumor cells that doesn't affect normal brain. The brain's tumor cells commit suicide. The cannabinoids also decrease the production of vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF, which allows new blood vessels to form to feed the brain tumor. And the cannabinoids also decrease an enzyme called matrix metalloproteinase 2, which allows cancer cells to become invasive and metastasize. So there's huge evidence in the test tube that cannabinoids may have some anti-cancer activity. But gee, I was an AIDS doctor for many years, and soap suds and gasoline also work against the AIDS virus, but I would never suggest that either one of them should be used as treatment. Similarly, we have no evidence in people that cannabis or cannabinoids have anti-cancer activity. And there are people out there who are, you know, I always say, I've been an oncologist in San Francisco for 37 years. If cannabis cured cancer, I would have a lot more survivors. So that's smoking cannabis and not taking these highly concentrated oils with high doses of THC or CBD. Do they cure cancer? You know, we hear anecdotes. People read about these people on the Internet. The National Cancer Institute has something called the best case scenario. If you've actually cured a cancer using uh, some non-conventional therapy, you can send that to the NCI best case scenario. And if they get enough of them, they might make some funding available to study something. But in the meantime, all the patients that I see in my clinic are not being cured of cancer by taking these very intoxicating and frequently very expensive high-dose cannabis preparations, patients paying up to $7,000 a month. Now, I know some of our standard chemotherapy makes that look cheap, but still, I mean, this is not covered by insurance, and I think people are being taken advantage of. And the thing that pains me the most is seeing a young person with a potentially curable malignancy who waited four to six months for their appointment with me and have been treating their cancer with cannabis oil, hoping that I'm going to tell them that that was the right thing to do. And now they have metastatic disease that can't be cured. Very painful. Right. How about from a complementary standpoint? Do you have any concerns using cannabis concurrently with chemotherapy? So there have only been a few studies looking at potential pharmacokinetic interactions 
between cannabis and chemotherapeutic agents. And the one that's looked at docetaxel and arena-tecan looked at cannabis tea. And I don't have many patients who are using a cannabis tea. Uh, I don't have any concerns about people inhaling cannabis while they're getting chemotherapy. In fact, you know, I highly recommend it because cannabis is the only anti-nausea medicine that also will increase appetite, decrease pain, decrease anxiety, and improve sleep. So not a day goes by that I don't recommend uh, cannabis to my patients. On the other hand, as I mentioned a few times, CBD seems to work on the system in the liver that breaks down other pharmaceuticals. And I fear that patients who are taking CBD might be inhibiting these enzyme pathways so that their pharmaceuticals, including their chemotherapy, may build up in their bloodstream to levels that are toxic. All right. So can you take me through some of the practical ways we go about this? So somebody goes and sees you and says, Dr. Abrams, I'm interested in using cannabis for my symptoms. What is your next step? Well, up until 2018, I had to write them a letter that said that I would, uh, I recommended cannabis for the use of, for the treatment of these conditions associated with their cancer. And I had tick boxes for pain, nausea, uh, appetite, sleep, other. Uh, and uh, then they would take that to the dispensary and they would be able to access cannabis for a year. Now that we're recreationally legal, they don't need that letter. And so I just tell the patients, I don't know what our dispensaries have, nor do I know personally what works best for whatever they're trying to treat. So I say, and I know this is not the way we like to practice medicine, but I say, go to the dispensary, tell them what it is we're trying to treat and ask them what would work best. And that's it. You know, I just wrote a paper, should oncologists recommend cannabis? And the bottom line I say is, I don't think this is something that needs a package insert. I think most patients are going to be able to figure out how to use cannabis. I do feel like we're kind of outsourcing this, though, because I do the same thing. You know, in Arizona, recreational marijuana is not legal. Uh -huh. So I'll write a letter for patients. And I visited a mar marijuana dispensary. And it's fascinating how many products there are. Uh -huh. There are flowers and different teas. And I find that the people that are working there are very knowledgeable but it's outside of our communication line. I don't get a lot of feedback in terms of what they're recommending. We just trust them that they're going to put people on the right stuff. Right. Well, I, I, I don't think they put people on. I think they make recommendations. And often I have patients coming in with a bag full of little samples or goodies that they've gotten from the dispensary. And they ask me which one to use. I said, I, check them out, figure it out, you know, try them and see what works best. Do you have any favorites? I mean, I've heard you say that you like tinctures or lozenges rather than brownies or edibles. Well, edibles and brownies, uh, you know, generally have things in them that I'm against for cancer patients, i.e. sugar and dairy. Uh, and some people even question whether we could call edibles medicine. I, I do think it's important to remind people of the different kinetics of inhaled THC versus ingested THC. When you inhale cannabis that contains THC, the plasma concentration is reached in two and a half minutes and then dissipates quite rapidly over the next 30 minutes. When you take it by mouth, it takes two and a half hours to reach a much lower concentration. 
But when taken by mouth, that delta-9 THC, the main psychoactive component, gets broken down in the liver during first-pass metabolism into an even more psychoactive 11-hydroxy metabolite. And the terminal half-life, when taken by mouth, the time for half of it to leave the system is 20 to 30 hours. So I see a lot of older women with cancer, particularly, who feel that eating is good and inhaling is bad. So they go to the dispensary and they're told, only eat a quarter of the cookie. And they do and nothing happens, so they eat another quarter and nothing happens. So they eat the whole cookie. And then they call me three days later, possibly after a visit to the emergency room with a dysphoric reaction, saying they're never going to do that again. So I tell patients, if you want better control over the onset, the depth, and the duration of the effect, I think inhalation is better than oral ingestion. If you find a product, however, that works, taking it by mouth allows you to take it much less frequency than frequently than if you have to inhale it. And this is where the tinctures and oils might come in handy, because when you put something in your mouth, some of it is rapidly absorbed under the tongue into the bloodstream, similar to inhalation. And then the rest of it you swallow, which is similar to ingestion. So you get more of a hybrid kinetics if you do these tinctures or oils. And when you say inhaling, is it smoking or vaping or what kind of product? Well, I don't think there's anything bad about smoking. I don't think it's demonstrated to do much damage to the lungs. certainly doesn't increase the risk of cancer. So if people are going to inhale smoke, I think a water pipe or a bong is probably better than uh, rolling papers in a cigarette. But I don't see that there's uh, that much potential for damage. If people are going to vape, and we did this study looking at the so-called volcano vaporizer, comparing vaping uh, in the volcano to inhaling the other half of a similar cigarette, found that they delivered the same amount of THC to the bloodstream uh, and got people equally as high, but with less expired carbon monoxide, which is a measure of exposure to noxious gases. So uh, I am happy with people vaping flowers I'm less happy with people inhaling oils because I don't know what the long-term effect of inhaling an oil is going to be. I do know what the long-term effect of inhaling plant material is because we've had years, if not thousands of years of experience with that, but not so much with inhaling oils. And how about the question of the risk of fungal infection with smoking cannabis? This seems to come up a lot amongst my medical oncology colleagues. Yeah, that's sort of, uh, you know, reefer madness. Again, we, we reviewed that uh, for the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. Those cases of aspergillus are sporadic in the medical literature, starting with Tony Fauci, the head of NIAID, reported the first case in 1974. And since then, there have been, again, just single case reports. The best uh, sort of review of a bunch of patients with HIV who had uh, aspergillus in their bronchoalveolar lavage showed that cannabis uh, use was not a risk factor for the presence of aspergillus, but it was uh, the deficiency of their immune system and prior opportunistic infections. And perhaps it was use of tobacco, I can't recall, but cannabis use was not associated. 
Okay. Can you take us through when you would suggest to a patient to start using cannabis and what route you would recommend? We've talked about neuropathy. We've talked about nausea, insomnia, and pain. And anxiety and, yeah, and depression for some people. So, Do you recommend right after someone has been diagnosed during chemotherapy, for example, that they should basically start using cannabis? Uh, yeah. I mean, if, if their therapy is going to be a metagenic, uh, I think cannabis is a good tool to have in the toolbox. Yep. Again, I always say there's not a day that goes by that I don't see a cancer patient with nausea, loss of appetite, pain, insomnia, depression, anxiety. And I could recommend one therapy, one treatment, one botanical, cannabis. And I ask all of my cancer patients, what brings you joy? And the number of cancer patients who say gardening brings them joy is not insignificant. I think that if you feel that you're dying or part of you has died, the ability to bring life out of the ground is a blessing. And if you can grow your own medicine, that's also very empowering. Well, thank you. This has just developed so fast, I feel, in terms of public sentiment, and I'm intrigued to see where this is going to go. You know, I think that even 10 years ago, there wasn't nearly as much support for cannabis for medicinal uses as there is now, and it just seems to be expanding very rapidly. So we'll see how this conversation changes and how much research there is in the next five or 10 years. Hopefully, it will be easier to start researching cannabis so we can get some firm answers on how helpful it is. Good. Well, let's regroup in five to 10 years and see where we stand. Sounds good. Thanks so much for joining me. 